Hey, I'm Will, and this is Benj. We're both church planners trying to work out how to form churches in this post-pandemic world. I lead a church that's trying to grow big. And I lead a church that's trying to grow small. But we share an interest in the beautiful and diverse future of the church in Australia. What will it look like? How will it adapt and innovate and thrive? If you're asking these questions too, then join us as we host a range of conversations with diverse thinkers and practitioners around what comes next. Welcome to the Forming Church Podcast, brought to you by Gen 1K and our vision to see a thousand healthy churches in a generation. Well, dear friends, this is a roundtable episode. What does that mean, Bench? Well, it means we are continuing the conversation from last week's episode. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and listen to that. That will give you context for what we're talking about today. Jamie Freeman and a couple of friends that he's pulled in are going to go through that episode and kind of help to unpack it and flesh it out in different contexts. So this is your chance to go deeper and consider what these ideas might look like where you are. This episode is sponsored by Baptist Financial Services. Invest with purpose. Find out more at bfs.org.au. Welcome to the Forming Church Podcast Roundtable Discussion. In last week's episode, Benj and Will chatted with John Kavanagh about church models and financial sustainability, leadership, context, all of these great things. And with me today, I actually have Benj and Will to have a follow-up conversation about what this looks like in their context. Because as we know, these guys are planting different types of churches. There's a bit of competition between the two of them. One's trying to grow small, one's trying to go large. So guys, what stood out to you in John's interview? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for the invite. It's good to be here at the round table. Been been waiting. Welcome. My invitation for a while. And I'm really, really honored. So well, we'll see how this goes to whether you get an invite back. <laughs> is it, auto- is it an automatic that I can come back? Well, no. You do, haven't I, done- do I need a social? You haven't done your intro okay. yet. <laughs> well, thanks for having me What stood well. out to you from the conversation, Bench? Oh, hey, hey, you're not asking the questions here, right? You're, you're a guest. You've been asked a question. Um, lots of things stood out to me. Um, I really loved, and this is the thing I've been pondering since we talked with John around the iteration and experimentation thing that um, he used the, the, the hub and the spokes thing, the modality and the sodality, that um, in order to experiment well, you need something... Um, of strength and structure in the middle. And um, yeah, I was, just, I was just thinking about that around like sort of our model of church and how that actually can allow a, a level of safety in experimenting with things on the fringe. Yeah, that, that idea stood out to me as just such a good way to get around our thinking of big versus small, even though we're already joking about the competition that we're about to have in this conversation. But to view it as a wheel that has a hub and spokes means that they're actually uh, parts of one whole. Even big and small church can be viewed as, and should be be viewed as one church with different expressions enabling momentum, like a wheel spinning. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's like he said, um, that one of the best things about church planting is the experimentation, the innovation for the church at large. And I think that's like the, 
relationship between the big and small as well or the different models of church that we can experiment and see different things and I love you know that's part of our relationship Will is that you can try things that maybe I couldn't try here and I can try things that maybe you couldn't try <clears throat> where you are uh, but we can still learn things and and sort of innovate what that might look like in our context. Mm, so, the, 100%. so the way you've described it then is almost like you guys working together as a hub and spoke is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a level of that happening within the autonomous local church that the church has to, the local congregation mm. has to be iterating and experimenting. But um, I think one of the advantages is that can happen at a more rapid rate within a network, particularly within a network of different models of churches. Yeah, I also think just may, it, maybe it reinforces the idea for me that any big established church should be thinking about church planting but not in the way that we have to replicate something that is successful according to our current version of successful, but that we should be church planting in the same way that large parent companies send out entrepreneurs to create new stuff, knowing that it's against a backdrop of uncertainty and actually we should expect uh, failure to come out of innovation. We cannot innovate without failure. Yeah. And we cannot grow the church of tomorrow and a, and a sustainable church that, that moves at the pace of culture without a posture of open-handed experimentation. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and talked about how Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant have probably missed more passes than anyone else, you know, in, in human history. Like they've, they've failed mm. more times at what they're trying to do, but it's like over that, that level of just like just – thousands millions of shots becomes refinement and success and i I think it was really interesting like around how do you actually gauge what is successful in a church and i love how john was talking about you know the emergent church movement a lot of those churches are no longer alive but what they birthed the ideas the challenge that came to maybe the more structured church the way way that we think about church now because of the emergent church movement like there actually is a huge level of success in that. That oh, if you're I thought just, that was so helpful. Yeah, that's right. If you're just talking about that on a uh, sort of local level, one church, you can go, oh, yes, success or failure. But when you think about it, kingdom um, across many churches, across the region, across the world, then like there's, there's so much more that come, fruit that comes out that isn't just, is a church still alive? Because there are a lot of churches yeah, that are well, alive as well that shouldn't be alive. That, that whole thing just makes me think, I know this is all a bit businessy, but, um, you know, just the idea that the first product to market isn't necessarily the one that stays, but it's essential. And, you know, people might know there's that like little YouTube video of the first leader is not as important as the first follower. And so in some ways, when you try something or when you step over an existing boundary, you do sort of give permission for others to do the same. And they might outlast you, but you're kind of creating that bridge into new territory. So I think people are very quick to criticise a movement that appears to have died without seeing that actually the seeds of it led to the next thing in a helpful way. Yeah, I've just actually been reading that book by Steve Taylor, First Expressions, and uh, it's really interesting because he has actually done that longitudinal study work and having gone and seen these churches in the UK 
and um, I think it was maybe five out of 11 are no longer in existence, but but being able to explore the different types of fruit and uh, that are now being uh, kind of making their way into the everyday life of other churches as they start things like Messy Church and look at these other programs that have come out of it as ways of engaging uh, the 85% of the community that won't actually be a part of uh, the the traditional church. It's, it's actually a really amazing and interesting read. Mm. Can I ask a quick question, Benj? I mean, I know, I know I'm know, i not here to ask questions. You can questions. ask one. Go. You don't have the control. But to me, the natural question that comes out of that is uh, we've got to rethink our metrics. So for you, in your context, what do you see as fruit? What are the useful metrics for the stage of church life that you're in? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know that I particularly have a good answer. I mean, we, we've been... We're pretty ambitious in what we're trying to, <laughs> uh, trying to record and and trying to measure. I think in practice it's not that easy, um, and attendance and cash flow is heaps easier to manage, um, at least to measure. Um, but we, we we tend to measure things a, a lot more about um, engagement, like the the percentage of engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, we measure our trying to measure our leadership pipeline, like the percentage of leaders and those serving, and um, we've kind of got a few different levels of of pipeline and leadership development that we can track. Do you want to share a bit about why you track that one? Yeah. Um, so we realise that if we want to be a church planting church, um, really the the lowest common denominator of that is that we need to um, build disciples, and we can't. We can't plant churches until we have multiplied disciples and and multiplied leaders. And you look at Jesus' life, and that's those two things were happening concurrently, right? The discipleship and the leadership. It's kind of like the two, two edges of, of the same thing. So how you guys have defined fruit then has actually shaped the way in which you've structured yourselves and, and what you're measuring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's sort of come out of a bit of a learning from Narara who um, sent us out, um, realizing that they sent out 25 great young leaders and realizing they were not as good at la- raising leadership as they thought um, in, in, a, in a systematized kind of way of just like consistently bringing up and raising people. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've chosen to measure that because it's a showing of our future capacity. It means that we're moving towards something. It means that we're, we're, we're growing people and enlarging people in some way. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's all sorts of ways that that could be skewed and, and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, I think that's an important metric for me just in terms of how we're progressing. It can, and, and that way, once we have all that data really, really good and solid and we can measure it year on year, we know where our blockages are. We know that, you know, we've got lots of volunteers in kind of the lower levels or, or easier things, but, you know, at certain levels in our pipeline, we're blocked for some reason. And so it can um, help us sort of evaluate where that is and what the next steps are. What about you, Will? What do you guys measure? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing that kind of comes to mind is that I'm probably more naturally geared towards qualitative measurements rather than quantitative. So, um, again, there's that lovely simplicity of numbers and I'm not 
disregarding the importance of numbers. Um, but some of the areas where I would look and see fruit are the kinds of people that are engaging with us. Now, as a church, we have really been quite specific. We constantly use this language around where for the spiritual misfits. And so these are people who, for various reasons, have either found themselves existing with a faith that doesn't fit into a community um, or that, for whatever reason, have felt excluded from mainstream churches. So I look around our community and I guess a, a, a specific example of, I guess, some fruitfulness is that I have various categories that I think of as spiritual misfits. I think about people that, for example, have complex mental health issues or I think about people in my generation, millennials, who have kind of deconstructed their faith and they didn't necessarily destroy their faith but their deconstructing felt like it couldn't take place in a church environment that wasn't kind of maybe asking some of those same questions. These are where my mind naturally goes to. Uh, some people have recently joined us at Meeting Ground who are, you know, um, in their 60s and have been um, divorced and still live with the stigma of that and still feel like, you know, one person said that she feels more welcomed at the bowling club than she has in some of the churches she's been to. I don't want to criticise individual churches, but for me it's a measure of, okay, she's a misfit that I didn't have in my categories, but she has found a home in our community. Um, so, you know, yeah, for me it's a big one is the kinds of people and then the kind of journey that we're taking people on. If we gather a bunch of misfits and we've all got wounds and questions and frustrations, five years from now we're kind of just sitting around with the same wounds and questions and frustrations, um, maybe we haven't actually taken people on a journey towards development, towards healing towards restoration and reconciliation. So those are probably the two kinds of things that I'm looking for. Mm. Who's, who's joining us or who's engaging with us? And is what we're doing actually creating a healthy, transformative community that gives people that beautiful mix of safety and stretching? That's great. Have, um, have either of you guys heard of churches measuring external things um, and thinking about impact being something that we measure in, in terms of the long term and the kingdom of God is a place of justice and reconciliation and wholeness and peace, shalom and community. So all of these markers of the inbreaking kingdom, do, have you heard of churches that measure that in their local community? An example could be if you're in a community in which there's high rates of domestic and family violence, that the presence of the church churches in that place actually sees a decrease in the rate of domestic and family violence or if um, loneliness is a really big issue in that community that over five ten years you actually see um, a downward trend in that and that people are beginning to be more uh, enfolded into different types of community and I wonder if we begin to measure not only internal things, which I think is really important, but external things, if that causes us to partner with other churches, in particular churches that are diverse and that through those differences, we can actually see the transformation of a whole neighborhood. Yeah, I, mm, I, love, I love that. that. <laughs> I love that a lot. Um, I, I think I tend to be very ambitious in theory about what we're measuring <laughs> and uh, in practicality, it doesn't come through. So I, in our metric sheet, I actually have a, a spot for, you know, like community engagement or mission, um, but we, we're not measuring anything in there. So I, I 100% agree with the, the theory of it and would love to explore what that looks like more 
in our context. Mm. But I don't, I don't know of anyone that's, I haven't come across anyone that's actually doing that in a very intentional way. Mm. Have you, Jamie? No, yeah. no, that's why I'd raised it. <laughs> <laughs> some, some good stuff is hard to measure. And I think it's important to say that as well, well particularly when we're trying to categorize what's a success and what's a failure. Some really worthwhile stuff is hard to measure. Like a current example, you know, we're working through the book, The Deeply Formed Life by Rich Velotis as these five values that are about rooting us in the way of Jesus. And really they're about the internal transformation of discipleship that leads to that external change. So one of the values in his book is racial reconciliation for a divided world, that that's like a key value for followers of Jesus. Obviously he's writing in a US context, but it's very relevant here in Australia. So in a couple of weeks, we've got some friends of mine coming to share some beautiful Aboriginal um, people. They're not Christians, but we've asked them to come and share with us just so that we as a people can go on a continued journey of listening to our First Nations peoples and being transformed by that. I don't know what the metrics are in this situation, but I'm like being a church that invites people in and that learns to listen and that goes on a long, slow, gradual journey of transformation. I'd hope that that would lead to change in us and around us, but I don't quite know how to measure that. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. And I think I think some of that stuff is, is input-based, right? Like... I don't know um, what we're trying to do when we plan out our year is look at our values and look at the you know apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, and work out how is our uh, value of community being outworked in a strategic goal, in a in a new input, in a in a thing that we're trying to like create new space in, or how is our strategic um, goal uh, gonna align with uh, shepherding or our value of renewal? You know, like so I think that's. It's, it's some of it is input based and, you know, it, it's pretty hard to measure some of that stuff in particularly in the long term, particularly in the lens of the kingdom, what it means, you know, statewide, movement wide, nationwide, worldwide, you know, like it, it's really hard to measure some of that stuff. Um, it makes me think it's just the vibe, right? Like if, if you're hanging around with, you know, you, you feel the vibe of like, man, is there like. Is there justice here? Is there beauty here? Is there community here? Is there safety here? You can sort of, you can pick indicators of that, but you can't actually point to any one thing that amounts to that. It's like, it sounds bad, but there's, there is partly a vibe, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I've, real, I've realized that my leadership, I base so much of my decision-making on intuition. But But what you have to do in order to like, get people involved in that and cast vision is to re-engineer that and and work out why that's a good decision or why that's a good thing so i think just because it's hard to measure some things doesn't mean that we shouldn't try but i think it's about holding those things in tension right Mm, it's good yeah i think one one other value of the just to quickly add this point one other value of viewing the spoke and the hub as different churches working together if, if I'm just operating solo, it's very easy for me to kind of pat myself on the back around what I'm doing. But if I've kind of indicated to you that we want to be a community marked by beauty and justice and wholeness and shalom and, you know, these kind of various things, then you can continue to help me reflect back on that from an external perspective. So I just think that's another way that we can actually not just kid ourselves that we're doing a great job, um, but be in relationships that force us to look maybe a little bit more objectively on some of those things yeah that's great so what else stood out to you guys in what john was sharing well 
There was a lot of chat about the dollars, yep. particularly towards the second half of that conversation. And, uh, you know, a, a big thing that stood out to me there was just the, um, the twofold uh, thing of, one, we should not just rely on the tithe. That is um, uh, perhaps something that if, if we were to bank everything on that going forward into the future, that would not be wise. Um, but also like the reclamation of like an old school bivocational, co-vocational kind of focus where the church is um, not just a recipient of people's generosity, but is also kind of generative through social enterprise type models. Uh, that stands out to me. I love that stuff. Yeah, I reckon it's it's well worth the conversation. And I think I think we need to continue to have this conversation around because I'm not even convinced that the tithe is is necessarily biblical in the sense that like I I realize that we've planted a church um, and we have people tithing and I am actually just benefiting from an old school model in a lot of ways that, you know, this is our church is sustainable, self-sustainable. But it's because of people being sent from other churches who already have that. And we haven't really even wrestled through that theologically, what we think about that practically what we think about that we're not even very good at talking about money and so um (laughs) i think we're probably one of the rare churches that is self-sustainable at the moment um and we've had grants and all that sort of stuff we've had you know gifts and donations but um mostly because of uh historical (laughs) goodwill you know and, and people coming from churches where that was taught and so I, I realize this is something that I need to wrestle through and that, you know, as a church, we need to wrestle through a lot more. Um, and I love, I love the idea of the, I, he talked about the, the monastery was like the old school social enterprise where they brewed beer and to, to fund ministry. And I, I reckon that's, the, um, and I'd love to explore that. Um, but I still have a lot of questions around how that works and, you know, church and business and the interaction of that. I know that can be messy um, and I think like, I think it's great that like some people feel really called to the Kovo thing, but I think if that was me, I would be a worse human being and a worse pastor. And so, um, what are you saying about me, bro? <laughs> I'm saying nothing. I'm saying that you're a, <laughs> you're a special man. Um, so maybe it, it could be helpful to actually explain what Kovo is, uh, cause that's a throwaway word, which might mean something to us. But what about for someone who's never heard that before? Will, do you want to share a bit about what Kovo is? Yeah. Good, good pick up there. Uh, so you might Dear listener, have heard people talk about being bivocational. If you haven't heard that, it basically means somebody who has two jobs uh, and often in kind of its crude form, um, a job to support ministry. So I'm going to work at the cafe X number of days a week so that I can then do my ministry. There's lots of wonderful things about being bivo and lots of reasons why people do it. But the shift into the language of COVO, which is now what I'm using a bit more, is about not just doing two separate things, but seeing all of life as one leveraged calling that has different expressions uh, that kind of are, are unified in, in their goal. So to put this in practice, like I work, I have a small business, I create content, I do public speaking, um, a whole bunch of what I do is about social good and transformation 
you know, in a range of different ways. And it's also about where I build relational equity. So what I do through my kind of creative work is very directly linked to the kind of person I am then as a pastor in the neighborhood, in my community, trying to build trust with people, trying to do good work. So there's lots of different ways you could do it. You could start a a brewery that is about building community, that is about social good, and is also the place where you lead uh, your kind of church gathering or whatever that looks like. So lots of different ways it could look, but that's essentially what Covo is about. Excellent. That's super helpful. Jamie. Yes. I know you've got some good thinking around this and you you sort of done the Bivo Covo thing before. Um, and I think a lot of it probably comes down to an effective team leadership model um, rather than because what I've seen in the past is a small church run by someone part-time or free, you know, like at, at nights or whatever, they're, they're working another job and it just destroys them. So I, I, I completely agree and I think I, I love the shift from Bivo to Covo and I completely get around that. And I want to see more of that like within the church and, you know, these ecosystems of business and church and like I, I, I love to see a healthy thriving ecosystem within a neighborhood around around that and around the common good um oh but you're you're for sure naming the risk yeah and and naming the things that i i need to hear whatever wisdom jamie has on how to do this well because it's not simple it's very admirable it's very worthy i'm very committed to it ideologically but i recognize that it's super complex Mm. Yeah, so when we planted, uh, we intentionally pursued the co-vocational model in order to have a diversity amongst our leadership. And um, so it allowed allowed us to grow um, the number of staff before any one person was full-time. And um, while I was intentional in pursuing uh, co-vocational roles, so roles that kept me in the local community, roles that um, weren't just about providing income but about stimulating connection with our neighbours. I think one of the lessons that I learned in that space is while I had a clear calling and understanding what that was, the rest of the church didn't have an understanding and so therefore the cost um, that you can bear personally in that is quite a lot. So when you're juggling multiple jobs, uh, it, it's it's really hard from a time perspective, um, from that time management, from an emotional perspective. And it really, one of the things I learned in that is the types of roles become really important and how they work together. Um, because if they're roles that are working against one another, uh, an example is lots of people in ministry um, might have a church-based role and then a parachurched parachurch role and um, and they can be in in conflict with one another sometimes because it might take you out of your church community when your church community gathers and you might be mm. doing um, preparing sermons in in one context that's different to another context so you're, you're delivering twice the amount of content and um, and so it's, it's thinking through what are the types of roles that work together and also mm. Like, what is the community's sense of calling around this as a model, so that um, you don't end up getting burnt out in the in the process, uh, but that you actually share the load in the church as well? That's very good. Well, really briefly, uh, because we're probably running out of time here, but I'd love to hear a bit more from each of you around your particular model and why you chose that. 
Yeah, so I think um, I alluded to this a little bit within um, within our conversation with John that we, we really planted probably as a neighborhood church, um, focus on being hyper-local. Uh, I had no idea. I mean, I think maybe we had talked about this a little bit, Jamie, before we planted, but it probably wasn't as well-formed. Um, and that we shift, we shifted sort of without us knowing to a regional church. And I think, you know, as, as a church, we feel a real sense and calling towards becoming a resource church, planting more churches um, and becoming sort of, you know, that that uh, gift to the region and beyond. Um, but I guess the reason that I, that I chose uh, big church, if we're going to use that that kind of paradigm rather than small church, is partly because it's what I've known. I studied at Hillsong College, being part of Norara Valley Baptist. My whole life is on staff there, which is, you know, a medium-sized church, probably one of the bigger Baptist churches in the state. Um, so partly it's what I've known. I think probably part of it is what you can envision yourself doing. Part of it's ego wrapped up in that for sure. Um, I, I think one of the great advantages to a bigger size church um, is I've been thinking a lot about proxemics, which is the study of like different relational spaces and how people interact in different spaces and how when it comes to discipleship that there are different groups and sizings of groups that are really important to our formation. And so there's the public space, which is kind of like different people have different views, but 35 people plus. There's the social space, which is like 10 to 35. There's the private space, which is like under 10, like five, five people, and then the intimate space. And that all of those social settings, all of those group dynamics are really important for us to form in the way of Jesus. I need, I need the public space because it's like I am part of something bigger. There's that um, sociological idea of collective effervescence. I don't know if you've heard about this, but that like they... That sounds beautiful. It does, it does. They've studied like... Um, you know, like sporting matches or concerts or r- religious, um, you know, gatherings. And there's something sociological that happens when people gather to do the same thing, whether it's, you know, singing together or chanting, that on a, on a kind of physiological level, like it, it lowers blood pressure and it helps unity and it binds like a community together. And I think there's something that is beautiful about that that a larger church can offer, you know, the public space. Um, what it does mean is that the larger church has to work harder towards those other spaces, the social space, the private space, the intimate space, whereas probably a smaller church is working from the social space and they have to work harder towards the public space and the small spaces. And so I I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, but I think a larger church allows for that broader depth of of proxemics and, and different spaces. I think it also means that there's obviously a larger impact you can make on a on a community level you know when you when you're thinking large projects when you think about working with council stuff like that um and there's advantages to that as well um but largely i think the reason i chose it was just because that's when i felt called to ministry and when i thought about it that's what i thought about you know and and i probably didn't really make it out of any um you know deep study around different models it was just sort of like just sort of came out of who I am and my experience. And so a lot of that is probably just what I fell into. That's great. What about you, Will? Mm. Well, thanks, Benj, because there was some stuff that was really, 
really interesting and useful. I'm going to continue to digest that, but I love that we both need to work on the spaces that are more difficult from our default position. So that's, that's helpful. I think for me, like a key thing is that the strong sense of calling, like I never had a sense of, some people would, would talk about, you know, being called to be a, a pastor as the kind of key thing. They, they have a strong pastoral calling on their life. I never really felt that. I felt called to a people. And even when I was on staff at Narara, it was like, yeah, I'd love to be a, uh, a part of the team in this church. I love what this church is about. And so when the seeds of meeting ground were being kind of developed, it was more about seeing the kind of people that I wanted to be shepherding or pastoring um, as not in the kind of regional or resource church environments. And so a simple church was partly about, I was called to a people. And so I think this came out of the John conversation, like you start with your values or you start with your sense of who you're called to. And then the model should serve that rather than the other way around. So the kind of people that we're doing church with don't want to go to a building and hear the thing they've heard hundreds of times. And again, not a criticism for some people that's still really wonderful and life-giving and what they're looking for. Um, But the simple church model for us means prioritising conversation, hospitality, those smaller relationships maybe for working through some more complex kind of things. Um, And also I probably did feel, I probably have felt a calling if I'm going to be doing ministry to always be doing it by Vo or Covo. There's a lot of reasons why I'm committed to that, but I love the idea of being kind of engaged in, in the kind of normal workforce, so to speak. Um, I think that plays to my strengths. Um, again, that's no criticism to people that are called into full-time ministry. They're wonderful people that are really shaped for that. Um, but for me, I feel like to, to kind of honour the way I'm wired, but to also kind of answer that sense of pastoral calling to a people, uh, this was the right mix and model for that. Guys, that's fantastic. And I think what's been highlighted in through what both of you shared is that sense of starting with self and also understanding context, which is what John was talking about, and that the sustainability and the model, uh, those things come after that. And so it's really starting with who you are, how God has wired you, who are the people that he has called you to, and and therefore, uh, yeah, what are the models that can help you build that? Um, and that models are something that are applied uh, and they, they don't actually – fit perfectly there you often blend them and they shift over time and that's really really good too they're there just as a starting point to help give you a bit of a framework for for life and ministry and for making decisions in the beginning yeah yeah and i think i think one of the things that's been highlighted to me through covid in a missional sense because i i would have if you talked to me pre-covid and thought about you know um people coming to know jesus in the next kind of 10 to 20 years in what environment would that happen most readily? I would have, I would have said to you something around a smaller church model in homes. The interesting thing to me is that through COVID, we shifted to a house church model because we had to. Um, and I had conversations with people who don't follow Jesus, who still don't follow Jesus, but have found us online, connected with us relationally a little bit in our neighborhood or whatever, and the thing I've heard a few times now is when you guys have a service again, I'll come. Um, and they don't want to go to a house. 
I think there's something about that in, in a missional sense of safety in that kind of public space or there's something about a, um, I don't know, it, it feels a bit more legit or something. For people, there's this kind of like cultural um, memory of like churches on a Sunday morning at a building that can actually, missionally can can work to our advantage with a certain subset of people. And then there's people who, because of past abuse, because of social anxiety, who will never enter a church building. And that those two mm. things, like we have to be better at holding those two things in tension mm. and, and how do those, those things work together? How do we continue to like, you know, share ideas and innovation and in, in a network to know, we had a guy actually, I had a guy that I connected with um, who's part of your church now who we were having conversations and like he just wasn't going to connect in our church because it was just too big, but he's fit in so mm. well at your church, you know? And I think that's a, yeah. that's a beautiful thing about being collaborative between different types of churches. hundred yeah. percent. Mm, I just want to add one more thought because it may be useful for people listening. It's been something that's been useful for me to think about. I feel like when we, we think about our churches, uh, a lot of people we really only conceive of um, people growing through people coming from other churches to our church or kind of new conversions. We think about conversion growth or transfer growth. And we pretty much primarily exist for what I would call healing growth or like the growth of people who are not in either of those categories. They don't need to be converted, um, but they are not transferring from a church. They're just in the wilderness. And I would just put this out there because my read on our context in Australia is that that is a rapidly growing group of people so churches should be thinking about yeah sure how are we helping new people come to faith we should always be thinking about that how are we helping people that have a faith find a community that they belong in and how are we helping people that have a faith but don't have a community to find uh, the healing they need to re-enter community yeah i agree i think if you look at our growth as a church a lot most of our growth is through transfer but the next biggest for sure is church people hurt by church people on the fringes of church that never really connected in you know that have a faith they're exploring but it's like it's never clicked into place um so yeah i reckon that's huge and that's a wonderful growth because it's like i mean i just think of the parable of the 99 sheep and it's like man like the, there's that's a growth that comes through reversing a loss and we should be grieving the loss and seeking the gain of reversing the loss that's so good what a great way to end on. Thank you guys for this conversation. I look forward to continuing it in many different ways over the coming weeks. And uh, thank you for tuning in to the Forming Church podcast. You can join the conversation online via our socials, Instagram, and join the Facebook group. Awesome.